The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and open to the book of Romans again, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We've made our way in the study of this epic epistle by the Apostle Paul through the first seven verses, and now we pick it up in verse 8. Just a little bit about our method going through the book of Romans. We're going to, uh, it's going to be a lot and a little, a lot and a little. And what I mean by that is we're going to cover verses 8 to 15 today, next week, verse 16, the following week, verse 17, and the next week, only half a verse. So it's going to be a little bit of an accordion, big sections and small sections. But the section we're looking at today is really one unit, and there's no, no real easy way to break up the message that we can glean from the Apostle Paul as he's continuing on in his greeting of the Romans. Let's pick up in verse 8. Paul says, first, and what I find interesting is there's never a second. Uh, he kind of finishes the epistle and never finishes the second. I love that. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because... Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want to be unaware, you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. People group together for a countless, inestimable amount of reasons. People group together for sports and sports activities, for sports that they follow, for football, basketball. They group together for concerts and for entertainment. They're grouped together for politics, for clubs. Some even group together for the state fair. What makes these groups come together and what makes them assemblable, if that's a word, is that there's a common interest that holds them and holds their attention and holds them together looking at the same thing that interests them. However, it's not common for any members of a group to have multiple allegiances multiple affections beyond that which groups them together. For example, if you were to go to a Chiefs game today, and by the way, there would be plenty of seats to get today if you were to go see a Chiefs game. If you were to go to a Chiefs game today, among those Chiefs fans, you would find Democrats and Republicans, faithful spouses and adulterers, Christians and Muslims and Mormons. You would find lovers of rock and roll, lovers of country. You would find moral and immoral people. You'd even find fans of... Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Kansas State, Oklahoma, and you might even find a Tennessee fan there. The point is that 
groups of people who share in common an interest only go so far in that which interests them. Only so far in common passions and pursuits. The church is not like that, though. Yes, we may be fans of different sports teams, and we may have different allegiances for, for our, um, our fan appreciation, different interests in music. But we're different than the world and what groups the world together in different congregations. When you consider the makeup of the church, you find a group of people who are constructed completely different from any other kind of group. The difference between the church and any other group of people is dramatic. Think about it. The church is made up of any and every race, here and worldwide. The church is comprised of people from every socioeconomic strata. The church contains people from all walks of life, all backgrounds. The church is made up of people who used to have issues with each other, people who used to dislike each other. Some even hated each other. The church is made up of the more attractive and the less attractive, the tall and the short, the brave and the timid, the popular and the unpopular. You have people like Pooh and Tigger and Owl and Eeyore and that little pig-like creature. There are all sorts of kinds of people in the church. I know from having interacted uh, with you as your pastor, we have such a wide variety of personalities, of backgrounds, of people, of passions, of of Different things that made you who you are that put us together in this building today. In fact, the church is special as a group because in it, God brings together so many different kinds of people who would have never congregated were it not for their common love for Jesus Christ. It goes even deeper than that, though. We, as a part of Christ church, have a love for each other that transcends normal affections that normally draw people together in normal relationships. This is very abnormal what we're doing here together. This is very abnormal what we do in Sunday school and in our fellowships and in our meals and in the people we invite over and the people we interact with. This love is personal. It doesn't go away like the bond we share with the fellow fans sitting by us at the football game when we leave the building or the stadium. Even more odd than that, we can have Christian affection, get this, for those who know the Savior whom we have never met. Isn't that in essence what missions is? Isn't that in essence what evangelism is comprised of? Is a passion for souls that we don't have a relationship with spiritually? That's the picture we get here in Romans 1 as Paul continues his greeting and his introduction. You remember, Paul has not yet been to Rome, probably writing for Corinth, uh, spending that time in Greece at the Peloponnesus where it comes down uh, into that little bottleneck between two seas, between the land masses of Upper Greece and the lower region Sparta, the Peloponnesus. We're there at Corinth. He's writing to the Romans. He's going to end up going back toward Jerusalem. You know, as we've read in the book of Acts, He's going to be tried, accused, arrested, multiple years in prison at at Caesarea by the sea. He's going to be transported through a shipwreck, via shipwreck, time in Malta, up through Rome, back into a prison in Rome, where he will eventually get to meet these people because God will ordain it that he would be under house arrest. 
Now, in his first two imprisonments, remember he's there three times, he's under house arrest. The third time he's in a Mamertine prison, which uh, I've had the, the privilege of standing in just outside the Roman Forum. It's, it's a pit. It's the size of a bedroom. It's dug out of pure stone. They would drop food and supplies down in, and it would be in a cold, wretched place. That's why I think he, he uh, writes to Timothy and says, Bring me my coat. I'm cold. But here, he interacts with people who he would one day, through his first Roman imprisonment, get to interact with in person. As we'll find out in a few minutes, he's, he's tried to get to Rome many times, but been prevented. And we'll find out what prevents him from going as well. He wants to be there. He hasn't. Paul's greeting then to the Romans is more extensive than any of his other epistles. Why? For good reason. It's the only letter we have from him written to a church that he didn't start or found or have a ministry with. He's never met these Roman Christians before. It's remarkable that the most extensive explanation of the gospel, the most extensive greeting and closing to any group in the New Testament is Paul to the Romans, and this is a group of people he had never met. He had a love for those who shared his affection for Christ that that transcended distance, that transcended even their acquaintance. The affection he expresses in this opening and the closing as well is nothing short of supernatural. His desire to see these Christians who, who live in Italy, who live in Rome, is remarkable considering the circumstances. Now, I, I think I told you when we began Romans, I want to weave a lot of the background information in as we go along and not, didn't want to bore you with a long uh, introduction to where, when, why, who, and all that. Let's go into the depth of this a little bit further, though. This is remarkable. Paul had been promised by the Holy Spirit. Remember Acts 20? He had been promised by the Holy Spirit that everywhere he went, he was going to meet chains and persecution and would ultimately suffer martyrdom and death because of God's leading of his ministry into the next city. Yet, he wants to get to Rome. At the end of uh, the book, in Romans 15, we find out that he wants to use that as a missionary outpost, even to go into Spain from there. Rome was the seat of Christian persecution. He was only a few years away from Nero uh, coming to the throne and making Christianity a capital crime for which... You could be beheaded or burnt or left out to starve. It would be there in Rome that Paul would ultimately die for his faith. It was a different race. These were Italians. These were Romans. This was a different language. They spoke in Latin. It was a different culture, very different from anything in Greece or in Palestine or in the Jewish confines of Jerusalem. Very different. But... They had the same, this group of believers had the same faith that Paul had, and that made him love them in a special way. They, they shared a bond. They had a common faith that made them attractive to him. Rome was the seat of world power, the chief exporter of paganism, the chief exporter of idolatry. It was literally an idol factory. These facts make Paul's greeting more than a little interesting. His affection for these Romans, his bond with these believers in, in Rome, these Italians, was, was remarkable because he'd never met them, and that should be an incentive for you and me. You are connected. You are deeply bound. 
both now and in eternity, to a whole group of people you've never met. And regardless of what some people think, there are churches meeting all over Kansas City this morning with people with whom you and I will spend eternity. And we have to be very careful that we don't become Elijah. Remember Elijah? He says, oh, woe is me. It's just me. It's just me. And God flips on the light switch and said, no, you're actually supported by tens of thousands. We can't look at this as aloneness. I love Mission Road Bible Church. This is the only place I want to be. This is the place God has called us to. But there are Christians with whom we share a common bond here in this city, here in this state, here in this country, all around the world that we can never lose sight of. We are a small part of God's greater work in redeeming the saved who's called to himself worldwide. We want to invest in that part of his kingdom extension. Now, there's, there's so much in these verses, in, in verses 8 to 15. We, we could be here for a long time, but as I said before, it needs to be considered as one unit. It's Paul's greeting. The, the force of its impact comes when it's all put together. As we look closely at these verses, we can see, if you want an outline, two dynamics of Christian affection that we, we can imitate. Two dynamics of Christian affection rise to the surface and really beg for us to imitate them. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ to the Corinthians. And we can certainly follow him in his affection for those he had never met and his love for those who loved Christ in Italy. Two dynamics of Christian affection to imitate. The first is in verses 8 to 10. Persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Now let me say this before we dive into these verses. There's a, there's a kind of a common thing that preachers talk about. If you want to guarantee conviction, if you want to guarantee making everyone in your church feel horrifically, woefully inadequate, there's two things you can always preach on. Prayer and evangelism, right? Because we never pray enough, and we don't evangelize enough. Well, this is one of those mornings. It's about prayer. It's worse than you think. You better buckle up. There are things that emerge as we talk about this persistent prayer. The first is in verse, the first part of verse 8, accessed because of Christ. Persistent prayer is accessed because of Christ. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. So much in this little sentence. If you were a Christian and you knew the Apostle Paul, you could be sure that he prayed for you. It goes further than that. If you were a Christian and you knew the Apostle Paul knew about you, you could be assured he was praying for you. Paul was not selfish about his ministry. He had no franchise on the gospel. This is so encouraging. This is a, a convicting uh, a little, little point of reference for me as someone who loves our church, who loves our, our, um, the Bible church nature, our independent nature. Uh, there's parts of that I love, but it's so convicting. Paul said, no, I don't have a franchise on the gospel. This was a man who had planted most of the churches that were in existence at the time. Yet he finds out that someone, won't it be interesting in heaven to find out this food chain, someone shared the gospel with someone who ended up in Rome who shared the gospel with a group of people who ended up creating a Roman church by themselves. No ecclesiastical oversight. No authority. They loved the gospel. They loved Christ. They didn't even have a Bible. But they gathered together to worship. Paul hears about it and begins desperately praying for their maturity. 
the gospel wasn't a franchise that he owned. He longed for it to spread. Remember that curious little story in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I'm in prison. He's uh, writing as a prison epistle from Rome. And he says, uh, people are outside and they're preaching against me. They're saying I'm ugly, I don't look good, I don't speak good, I'm nothing to look at and I'm nothing to listen to. And they're preaching against me, but they're preaching for Jesus. Remember what he says? As long as they're preaching the gospel, so be it. He had greater passion for Christ being promoted than himself being promoted. Unbelievable humility, which is wed through all this passage, by the way. For Paul, God was not some philosophical abstraction. Look at the text. He says, my God. God was his friend and his sender and his savior. Had he been alive today, I think we would hear him humming all the time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Paul had, Paul had so much to complain about. How would you like it to have your life's goal and your, your ministry being promised by God? Paul, I want you to come be my slave. Okay, Lord, I will. Go to Damascus. You get educated by the Lord. You get instructed into what you're going to do. And then the Holy Spirit says to you, Every place you go, you're going to suffer persecution. Every place you go, they're going to beat you up physically. At Derby and Lystra, they're going to beat you up so bad, they're going to drag you out, leave you in a ditch as dead. The next time that we get to the point of complaining, which is not even a daily but an hourly occurrence for me, let's just remember that in the worst of circumstances, Paul found reason to thank God. Your life isn't as bad as you think. I know we all have things we can com complain about. Some of them are even people that we know. Some might even be in this room. We have nothing to complain about. Nothing to complain about. It's a serious spiritual issue to complain about God's providence. God had ordered a providence for Paul that was beyond anything he's going to call you or me to. And Paul was thankful. He thanked God. His thanks to God was conditioned by his understanding of the gospel. He says, through Jesus Christ for you all, for you all gives us the impression he knew how many people were there. He might have known their names, as we'll see at the end of the, uh, of the, uh, of the book. He knew who they were, what they were doing. He gave thanks for each of them by name. He didn't just have that immature Christian kind of, God bless all the missionaries in the world. Well, that's better than not praying at all, but I think we can do better than that in our specifics. Again, Paul is unmistakably clear at the beginning of Romans that Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about Jesus. Verse 1, Jesus is the master to whom Paul was a slave. Verse 2, Jesus is the Messiah promised by the Old Testament. Verse 3, Jesus is the focus of the gospel. The rightful heir is king of the earth and the descendant of David. Verse 4, Jesus is the Son of God, the one who rose from the dead, both Christ and Lord. Verse 5, Jesus is the grantor of grace and ministry, the Savior of the Gentiles for his name's sake. Verse 6, Jesus is the one who initiates and calls sinners to salvation. Verse 7, Jesus is the giver of grace and peace, co-equal with God and Lord and Christ. That's just the first seven verses. His orientation point for life, for ministry, was the person of Christ. Remember, Christianity is not merely a plan. 
Christianity is a person. It's God in flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, by the time we get to verse 8, Paul has given a virtual course in Christology on Christ. Look at the next part in verse B. He, he was aware of others' witness. Persistent prayer is aware of others' witness. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. What a reputation. Just, just pull the car over for a second. Christianity, as we read in the book of Acts at the end, in our scripture reading today, uh, people were hearing about it and wondering what it was about and having questions about it. These little band of believers in Rome, remember, not started by any apostle, having no apostolic teaching thus far. This little group of people were so faithful in the midst of a pagan, horrifically immoral culture that their faith was known worldwide specifically in the church, and probably by the secular community. It makes sense that this group of believers in the furnace of paganism would, would have a reputation. Their very lives were on the line for faith in Christ. Have you ever heard of the catacombs? They had to go underground not long after this, on the run for their lives because of their faith in Christ. They would be lit on fire as torches in just a few years, fed to lions, separated from their families and sent off as slaves, tortured, even maligned for their faith. Interestingly, interestingly, very, very interesting to me, Rome itself would continue to persecute believers, true believers, even after Constantine in the 4th century and the beginning of the Catholic Church. The primary persecution of true Christians would really ramp up after Rome became a Christian empire. Very interesting if you look at the history of what was happening in Italy, in Rome. Um, Kim and I were able to go on a ministry trip to Italy a few years ago and took several tours. One of the most fascinating was the Colosseum. And even the secularists, the, the, the secular tour guides of the Colosseum will tell you that there's a mythology that's been placed that goes back to Leo X in the time of Luther um, on the Colosseum. Most people say, well, look at the Colosseum. This is where Christians were fed to lions. We only have one account of one Christian ever dying in the Colosseum, and he was a gladiator, which seems to have a conflict of interest in, in your job. He's probably a slave that was pulled into the gladiator business. But we have this great mythology that lasts down to this day that Christians were killed in the Colosseum by lions. They weren't. They were killed by lions, but it was across town in uh, Teatro Marcello, the theater of Marcello. And that's where, because that was, that, was lower, that was for the lower class to come and watch Christians get eaten by lions. The gladiators were over in the Colosseum. So why, why do we keep saying it? Why have we thought for years that it was in the Colosseum? The reason for that was that Leo X needed money for marble, and he needed the materials for marble to build St. Peter's Basilica, part of the Vatican. And so what he did is he created a mythology. He invented the fact he changed history. He lied and said Christians were killed in the Colosseum. Then he could declare it anathema. Then he could use the marble from the Colosseum to build St. Peter's Basilica. Really interesting. Rome would be a chief persecutor of Christians and frankly still is to this day. I have a friend named Lucio who's um, uh, a 
missionary in Rome whose best friend uh, is an elder in this church in Rome, who, when they came to faith in Christ, uh, Fausto is his name, when he came to faith in Christ, uh, his family disowned him. The Catholic church, that he was locally a part of the parish, they disowned him and said to him that they would uh, have nothing to do with him. And it was so bad that when, when they had a baby, the grandparents and the community wouldn't even address the child by his name and called the child an it because it hadn't been baptized. Make no mistake that there are places suffering in persecuting forces for whom we should be praying. Paul understood this issue and prayed for them. How did he pray for them? Here, this is really convicting. Here's where the, the seatbelt needs to be cinched. This persistent prayer was also offered with unceasing attention. Unceasing attention for God, whom I serve in my spirit. This was a genuine, authenticated uh, uh, worship that he had. This wasn't just for public consumption. It was internally with him, between him and the Lord. In the preaching of the gospel of his son, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, Woe, to me, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. God is my witness. Now, if you're an underliner in your Bible, you might want to underline and kind of draw lines between these, these words as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. Unceasingly, always. Paul's prayer life is directed to and accountable to God himself. He calls God as his witness. God is the searcher of hearts, the knower of truth, the validator of all things private and public. And he validates Paul's grandiose statement that he prayed unceasingly and always for the Romans. He appeals to God's omniscience as proof. Now this isn't because he thought they doubted it. He was just overjoyed and saying, I, God knows how much I love you and how much I've prayed for you. Footnote, how is our prayer for other believers, especially in difficult context? Do we, will we, can we pray for those, some of which we don't know? Did you know in Sudan today, seven people will die in Sudan today as a result of the gospel? Before we go to bed, seven people will be transforming their faith to sight by their death. When's the last time we prayed for the, the persecuted church, the, the martyred church? These two words haunt me unceasingly and always. We can stop right here, conduct a series for several months on prayer from those two simple words. Unceasingly and always. Did Paul have a good anchor on the sovereignty of God? Of course he did. Why would he keep praying over and over and over and over and over and over and over unceasingly and always for the same people? Why would he do that? Because what was on Paul's heart and mind was in his mouth in prayer. Pretty simple, isn't it? Whatever concerns us should be the, the air we breathe in prayer. I would imagine that Paul's prayers rarely included the term amen, to close the prayer off. He just kept the phone line open. He also requests the presence of 
other believers. I think persistent prayer requests the presence of unbelievers. Uh, making a request if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I would put the comma, by the way, after prayers, since I think the grammar supports Paul's request being able to come to see the Romans. That's what he's making a request of. He's requesting if he can come and see the Romans. Paul wants to be with these Italians so badly he can't stop praying for them or requesting of God to come and see them. He has an affection for those who have an affection for Christ. Remember, when Paul first comes to Rome, he's going to have that, that first Roman imprisonment where he'll be able to entertain people that are going to come in and out of his house under house arrest. In the next section, we're going to discover why Paul wanted to visit the, the Romans so eagerly, by the way. But how much do we pray for other believers? Can I just drive the knife in all of our hearts a little deeper? A refusal... Pray, especially for difficult people and difficult situations, is a loud pronouncement of personal pride. Because what we're saying when we don't pray is that I don't need God's assistance. Always, unceasingly, all of you, Paul's prayer was nonstop. Think of our opportunities to pray. Think of our distractions from prayer. Thinking about even the car, whether it's sports news or election news or whatever it was for the last few months. What, what things have distracted me from being in my car, which is really a good time to just turn stuff off and pray when you're there by yourself? Satan has very clever ways of keeping us distracted with all sorts of things that keep us unaware of our permanent ongoing access to the throne. You understand that, right? We have ongoing access. God is never somewhere else. God is never turning a deaf ear to us. He invites us always to pray, and full in our prayers should be our request for other people. Paul had it bad. He's promised chains and beatings, and he's praying for them for their situation. When I was in high school, i never forget going to a retreat. And I don't even remember the guy's name, but I'll never forget what he said. He said, students, if, you want, if you're having a hard time on anything, here's the best cure for your difficulty. Spend time praying for someone else with other difficulties. And he was right. Occupy your thoughts with prayers for others. First dynamic of Christian affection is that we can imitate is Paul's persistent prayer. And we can find all sorts of ways. If you want people to pray for and things to pray for, Come and see me, and I'd be glad to fill your notebook. Secondly, purposeful fellowship. Purposeful fellowship. Here Paul turns from wanting to pray for them and telling of his prayer for them to now saying, I want to be with you. Why? What do you want to do when you're with us, Paul? Well, this purposeful fellowship, first of all, in verse 11, provides humble, maturing service. It provides humble, maturing service. Verse 11. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Now the liberal theologians love to point at Paul and say, what an arrogant egotist. Well, I can't wait to come and just bless you with my presence. I can't wait to come and just give you spiritual gifts as if, as if he was some dispenser of spiritual toys. That's not what's going on here. It's not braggadocious. It's not arrogant. 
He's merely saying that all that God has given him, he wants to share with the Roman believers. I don't even think he's talking about specific spiritual gifts. I don't think he's talking about coming and saying, I'm going to give you tongues and you prophecy and you helps and you service and you leadership. He's not saying that. He has a whole chapter devoted to spiritual gifts, chapter 12. We'll get there. And he hasn't talked about dispensing them. God dispenses spiritual gifts. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the general spiritual strengthening and encouragement that comes from Christian fellowship. I can't wait to come to you to, to, to grant you the gifts that come with being in fellowship. And the next phrase actually explains the truth of that. And he says that you may be established. That's a word for mature. You may be, be adequately promoted in your love for the gospel and in spiritual maturity. He wants them to be matured and strengthened by theology, doctrine, and the gospel itself. That's why he writes this epistle. That's why he wants to go and see them. He wants them to be established, solid, grounded. Remember the context. They have no Bible. They've had no apostolic teaching. They believed the gospel, and he was afraid that unless they were corrected, unless they, they had their trajectory set from the very beginning, they would be suspicious. Uh, sus, uh, it, they would fall to the suspicious, namely the false teachers. And they had no, no ability to even be suspicious of them. This purposeful fellowship also in verses 12 and 13 seeks spiritually stimulating interaction. This is so good. That is, he's not just talking about one way blessing them. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you. Now we know that Paul's not an arrogant uh, spiritual maniac who's going around dispensing spiritual gifts. It's two-way, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. He wants to be there. Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. There is the essence of of Christian fellowship and Christian encouragement. It's centered around faith in Christ. I love cookies. I love donuts. I love the shuffleboard and the, and the fellowship hall and the, the little Kool-Aid cups I used to get in fellowship hall in my Baptist church that I grew up with. But that's not fellowship. Fellowship is the essence of encouraging one another because of our faith in Christ. Fellowship has to have spiritual content. It's not just Christians getting together. It's Christians who are together talking about the issues surrounding our faith. It's amazing that Paul's never met these people and he wants to have that kind of interaction with them. The common faith he shares with them is not only encouraging, Paul was excited to see what Christ had done in their lives so he could learn from them. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, wanting to learn from them, be encouraged by them. Loud statement of humility. He longed to be ministered to by these inexperienced, untaught, uneducated believers. Listen, everyone has something to contribute in the body of Christ. Everyone, you have something to contribute. You say, I don't know much, I just love Jesus. Please encourage us with that love then. You don't have to reach a certain level, take a certain amount of classes before you can be an encouragement to someone else. Just talk about what God's done in your life. That's what he centers on here, the common faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, just a Greek colloquialism to say, Make sure you know this. Brothers, he calls them brothers. He's never met them. He considers them spiritual siblings that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of the Gentiles. 
Now, what had prevented Paul from coming? We find out, if you will get there, in chapter 15, verse 22, he says that God had prevented him from going. Why? Because he had predominantly called Paul to go to places that had no gospel witness. And when he wanted to go to Rome, Paul had basically told, God had told Paul, I have a witness there. He wanted to go to Rome. God said, keep going to these unreached people, but he would take him to Rome eventually. What's this word fruit? This word fruit's a, an interesting word in the Bible. It can mean the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, things like that. But I think fruit here is contextualized by what comes before and after as people who come to faith in Christ. Fruit here is, is people. That's why we go into this next expression of purposeful fellowship. It transcends natural affections. It transcends natural affections. Verse 14. I am under obligation, let's look at some of this fruit then, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Isn't it interesting he says nothing about the Jews? He will in verse 16, by the way. I'm under obligation. We know Paul, from looking at at his mission a couple weeks ago, was called not to go to the Jews alone, but to go to the Greeks, to the barbarians. This is an onomatopoeic word. The barbarians doesn't mean those who are, who are eating animals half alive. Barbarians, is a, the, the word is barbarians. It just means the, the mumblers. It's people who speak another language. The Greeks, the people whose language I know, the people whose language I don't know. And he says, to the wise and to the foolish. The people who are learned, the most educated, and the people who have very little education, all the slaves the lowest part of society. Now we're back to where we started. Paul's discussion of the wide range of people he's called to preach to and we're called to fellowship with. Wise and the foolish. Smart and the simple. Verse 15, So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Don't miss this fact. Paul wants to preach the good news, the gospel, to people who are already converted. Why? Well, we'll read in the book of Romans that he wants to explain it more thoroughly. Secondly, we never weary of the gospel as believers. Do we? Do you ever tire of singing about it? Do you ever tire of thinking about it? God knew we would. That's why He gave us communion. Do this to remember me. He knew we would forget. He said, I want to come and preach to the gospel, preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And as I said, it's very interesting to me that he says, I'm going to come to the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. He says nothing about the Jews and the synagogues, but he will next week in Romans 1.16. I'm struck by... Paul's continual focus on Christ and his pronounced humility. He never wearied of talking about the facts of the gospel, the theology and doctrine of the gospel, our response to the gospel, and the coming of the Lord. So, so what? Well, let's get a little altitude for a second here. How are we doing in imitating, imitating Paul in these dynamics of Christian fellowship? Do you exhibit and participate in persistent prayer? Here's my suspicion. Most of us 
most of us probably could put more ticks and checks in the column that says, I've complained about X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, than we could, I've prayed about that same list. How are we doing in persistent prayer for those we know, for those we struggle with, and for those we don't know who are doing gospel work even today? Don't be satisfied with praying for all the Christians all over the world. Find someone specific to pray for. Go overseas and come back and give a missionary report. That's a start. You know someone who's a missionary. That's a start. Pray for those who are in other places. It doesn't even have to be overseas. All of you have family. Most of you have family in other churches this morning. Wouldn't it be great to wake up this morning and pray for someone by name and pray that they are specifically encouraged and equipped by the sermons, the Sunday school, their interaction, their fellowship, the worship, their singing, so that they are moved closer to loving and knowing Christ. And then being able to tell them, God knows, God has witness how unceasingly I've prayed for you. Let me give you a thought that will put chills on your arms. What if you knew someone was unceasingly and always praying for you? I had a, a, a friend who was um, he's in heaven now. His name is uh, Dan who was in uh, California. And he was one of those guys, he just, um, he scared me with his prayers. He, he, was, he, was, he was a little bit of an odd duck. He uh, actually did what he said he would do. He, uh, I think I told you that time he sat me down in Cocos. We got on our knees and prayed in a restaurant. He said, this is our world, the meek will inherit it. So, okay, I'll go down too. It was, but he, he just prayed for me, always. Um, I remember um, I was going on a trip. I was going into a country that, uh, that, that was very known for exporting pornography. And I hadn't even thought about this. And he says, he says Rick, I'm going to pray for you on this trip. And I said, great, pray for me on this trip. He says, I'm going to pray too because you're going to be staying in, in a hotel, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. He says, I'm going to pray that when you turn on or if you turn on the television, that if any pornography shows up on the television, that you'll, you'll have the, the, the wherewithal and the spiritual fortitude to turn it off and to, and to do the right thing. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So I end up going to this, this Russia, going into this hotel room. Go in, drop my bags off. i got about four hours till, till uh, the uh, guy's going to uh, pick me up. We're going to go out for dinner. And on the top of the television was an advertisement or free pornography, and told us which channel to go to. Well, I, first of all, I put that thing behind the, the, the television. And I just remember sitting down and going, who prays like that? And I knew Dan was praying for me on this trip. Really hard to sin in specific areas when you know people are praying specifically for you not to sin in that area. Parents, are you telling your kids how you're praying for them as they go off to school? They go off on a trip? Go off on a camp? Go out to fellowship with their friends or out to a movie? Are you telling them how you're praying for them? And then are we, are we praying for them? Man, it's so much easier to say I'm praying for you than it is to actually pray, isn't it? Don't we feel good when we say, oh, I'm praying for you, brother? It seems to be, go down better if we say, brother. Praying for you, bro. 
do we pray? Unceasingly and always, Paul said. Secondly, are we doing, are we doing and pursuing fellowship purposefully? Seeking mutual accountability and stimulation toward Christ when we're together. Do our conversations involve encouragement about our faith? Or do we just hang out with Christians and call that fellowship? Not fellowship. If it's on our heart, it ought to be on our lips and ought to occupy what we talk about. Man, it's easy for me to talk about college football. I love college football. If Christ is on our mind, he will be on our lips, and he will be the center of our fellowship. Won't he? Well, for that to happen, he has to be the object of our affection first. Goes right back to verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. The gospel motivates us to come to God and the gospel and the person of Christ is what motivates us on how to pray for others. How you doing? Don't answer out loud. How you doing? Can any of us just come up here and give a testimony at the end and just say, I just want to tell you how unceasingly and always I pray for each of you. If you can, let me know. We're going to give you the service tonight. We'll let you have it. Unceasingly and always we can all move better in that category. And also in dialing in our fellowship that's specific. You know Christ, that's easy. If you don't know Christ, it's impossible. And do you know the one who is to occupy our affection? Do you know the one who's the saver of souls, the giver of life, the granter of grace, the saver from yourself, from God's wrath, and from hell itself? If you do, then it's easy to talk about. And if you don't know him... You came to church on the right day because you're around people who know Him and would love to tell you what it means to be a Christian. Give your life to Christ. Submit your, your need to His Lordship. Is He going to make your life all better? Well, internally, between you and the Lord. But your life might not improve externally, but we are building into a kingdom that lasts forever when we close our eyes the final time. If you want to know what that means to give your life to Christ and to believe the gospel, in a few minutes we're going to close and our prayer room to the right is going to be open. You can come. There will be uh, folks there. Pastor Bob will be over there also to be able to talk to you. You can come and talk to me. Don't leave without talking about the health and the destiny of your soul. Please don't. Now let me give you a little head start. Next week, the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about perhaps two of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Romans 1.16, you all know Romans 1.17 is the, that's Luther's verse. That's the verse that Luther studied and he came to faith in Christ and began the Protestant Reformation and it changed the world. Pretty important piece of real estate in our Bibles. We're going to direct the next two weeks to those two verses individually and then... The week before Christmas, we're going to talk about God's wrath. Um, well, well, two weeks. We'll have a special Christmas service, but it's the next verse. What, I mean, what do you do? You can't just skip it. So we'll be looking at God who's so wrathful but also so gracious. 
to look into our judge's face and find a Savior. Father, you have been so kind to give us the example of Paul, so kind to give us the instruction that he gave the Romans in our Bibles. Lord, teach us how to pray more persistently and teach us how to fellowship more purposefully. And as we make grounds into the next sections of this great epistle, help us to swallow hard, to believe deeply, and to trust your great sovereignty and care. Bring us back tonight in our study of Deuteronomy to see what a gracious lawgiver you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.